Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Skinner's Hall and to the 6 KBW College Hill seminar. My name is Jonathan Hall, and alongside me we have an exceptionally interesting and quite tightly packed lineup of speakers. Um, without taking up any more time, can I introduce them to you? To the far right, Ryan Aykroyd and Mustafa Al-Bassam are former members of a black hat hackers group known as Lulsec, and this group achieved notoriety in 2011 by Brilliant, although it has to be said because they were subsequently convicted before the Southwark Crown Court criminal hacks on major global institutions such as the CIA, Sony, the FBI, and Nintendo, and we are delighted. <laughs> we are delighted they've agreed to come today. To my immediate right is David Smith, who is the Deputy Commissioner at that increasingly important and powerful body, the Information Commissioner's Office. He has responsibility for data protection supervision and through his work at EU level is very well placed to illuminate the current landscape and I hope also to illuminate the likely future landscape for data holders who may find themselves on the sharp end of a cyber attack. Um, two along from me, John Boucher is not only Deputy Chief Constable at Bedfordshire, but is the Deputy National Policing Lead for Cybercrime in England and Wales. He's not only a senior police officer, but if I may so, say so as well, he's a deep thinker and a purveyor of fascinating but tricky questions on topics such as the legality of undercover policing. He's going to talk about the role of law enforcement, and as to how effective that is, I'm also going to hope that our first two speakers will be able to throw a bit of light on that question. To my far right, Michal O'Floyen is lecturer in cyber security law at the University of Southampton, and he's going to speak on that completely key issue in cybercrime, namely territoriality and the relationship between states and service providers. He's our last speaker, and we're delighted that he's agreed to participate. And finally, we are very pleased and honoured that David Professor David Ormrod QC of Queen Mary University London, to my immediate left, a long-standing friend of Chambers and currently the Law Commissioner for Criminal Law and Evidence, has agreed to chair questions and answers at the end of the session. So, um, getting straight down to business, uh, uh, Ryan and Mustafa have agreed to answer questions. And the first one I'd like to ask you, please, is why did you get involved in, in hacking on such an impressively large scale? It started, uh, it started as a bit of curiosity. I mean, I just wanted to learn how uh, computers worked and what actually, um, what actually made them do the things that they did. And it just it kind of snowballed out of, out of control, really. I mean, it started with um, online games and wanting to be able to cheat at online games, you know, and get infinity money and just just get one up on the other guy you know and just and then it, I learned how to program and learned how to dis disassemble these games and I learned how to abuse them and things like that and then I just started getting into this like online culture where people started ab abusing software basically and I started writing exploits and and things like that and next thing I know I'm I'm breaking into servers and and, and things like that and it's it, it it gets quite addictive. I mean, some, some people collect stamps. Uh, hackers, hackers collect servers. <laughs> and um, Mustafa, without being too technical, um, 
how easy is it to breach cyber defenses of organizations? I mean, the most common way that companies get breached nowadays aren't through some sort of cutting-edge hacks or computer vulnerabilities, but they're simply vulnerabilities that have existed and we've known about since the 1990s that programmers just haven't been, been bothered to consider. And that's pretty much how we hacked um, uh, Fox, FBI, and all, and all the um, other companies that we hacked. So it's pretty easy. Right. <laughs> and actually, 90%, 90% um, of the way that companies get hacked, if you're a penetration tester, you would know this, is that it's not, it's not even through a computer vulnerability, but through something basic, like um, someone's using a password password. Right. Yeah. Um, Sure. Can I just ask, people at the back, could you hear the last answer? If you, if you could hear, put your hands up. And if you couldn't hear, put your hands up. Oh, well, they could hear. All right. But thank you very sure. much. Um, can I just then turn to the issue that I just raised? Your former hackers, how deterred were you by the thought that you might be arrested and prosecuted and potentially go to prison? Um, not, not really much, to, to, to be fair. I mean, it's a, it's a known fact that um, people who commit cybercrime are, are quite hard to track down. And in, in most cases, the, the, like a, a hacker is, is never really tracked down. And it's, it's one of those things, there's, there's, there's less risk in hacking a bank and stealing money than there is walking into a bank with, with a gun and trying to take it. And a lot of people realise that, and a lot of people have started to turn to online crime because it's easier. You can do it from your living room. You, you, can, you can sit and watch TV and do it and there's no risk of um, getting roughed up by police until, until the day that they actually come in and, and kick your door down. But that's a, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you this because you told me before. The, how you got caught is really fascinating. Can you just explain what it was that led you to be caught by the police? Um, I... We all had a Twitter accounts basically, and we were using these Twitter accounts to, 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 to basically taunt the police, you know, and just taunt other people that we'd um, that, that we'd hacked. And after a few people started getting arrested from the group, I decided that I was I was just going to leave. And I thought if I just stop tweeting, then if they know anything about me, they're just going to come, come and kick my door in straight away. So basically, I wrote a script to to log into Twitter and just randomly post random sentences to make it look like I was still there, but I, I, I wouldn't have been. But my computer froze, and um, I did what everyone else does when, when the computer freezes. I gave it a bit of a, bit, bit of a bash. <laughs> but I accidentally ran the script, and the script connected to Twitter with my uh, real IP, and then the, the police were able to, to pull that from, uh, from, from Twitter's logs. Thank you. Um, Mustafa, last week you said something very interesting that I found very interesting. You said that people haven't really thought through their dependency on computers. What, what do you mean by that? I mean, what I mean is that over the past 10, 20 years, um, so much of our lives now has been made to be dependent on the Internet, whether it be using email to communicate with your colleagues or using Facebook to catch up with your friends or organize parties or using Google Maps to get from A to B. So much of our daily activities and our daily schedule is based on the internet. 
And as a result, we've sort of given up so much of our personal and intimate information to a few companies, such as Google, Yahoo, um, and Microsoft. And that's also put our data at risk, not just from hackers, but also from um, surveillance by the state. Now, I want to ask you about another thing that you both said last week to me, which is that there's nothing much you can do to counter cybercrime apart from, I think you said, increase your security. I mean, is that right? Are there no countermeasures that could be taken against hackers? I think we were talking about um, cyber attack and cyber defense. So the government has this concept of, well, the, the government is creating this cyber attack force where they want to defend their, their systems through attack. But personally, I don't think that is applicable in that case. You can't apply physical war strategies in the digital atmosphere because in a physical um, atmosphere, if you attack the enemy, you're diminishing the resources. But in the digital atmosphere, if you attack the enemy, you're not going to diminish the resources. The best you're going to do is extract information from them. And that's not really going to help you defend yourself. That's just going to help you attack them even further. So I think that the best way to defend yourself online, well, if you're a government or if you're a corporation, is to simply make sure that your systems are secure. A lot Brian? of the... Um, yeah, just going back to the um, to, to, to defence thing, I mean, the only thing that you can really do is make your data useless to a hacker by encrypting it. If it's encrypted, then they won't be able to use that information. I mean, they will be able to deface your websites, destroy your systems, and, th and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's the customer's data that should be protected, and it should always be encrypted. And a lot of what we did, we found that companies were storing people's passwords in plain text. You could basically break into a server and have access to 50,000, 100,000, a million usernames, passwords, and emails. And a lot of people use those um, passwords in a lot of different places as well. And if they're plain text, they, you can just read them. And you can access people's PayPals, every, pretty much whatever you want. A lot, the majority of people use the same password everywhere. And you'd be surprised what, what else you can log into. But if all those websites that we broke into had encrypted the data, then that information would have been useless to us. A lot of the um, companies, they concentrate more on their public image and they're more afraid of having their website defaced and it's bad for business, basically, if someone can compromise their security and they concentrate more on protecting that image rather than actually protecting the information that they hold, which is the actual problem. I mean, everyone, everyone in this building, everyone on, on the planet is basically open to hacks. I mean, you cannot stop a determined attacker. For me, it was more of a challenge. The more security you had, the more security you had, the more it just wanted me to break into it, just so I could, just so I'd, I could say that I've got in there. I've defeated your security. And well, Ryan, can I, I mean, can I follow up on that? It's really a moral question, because people put so much of their personal data now on their devices, and hacking could be like going into someone's bedroom and stealing a very intimate diary. Do you think that hackers have a sense of morality and may be deterred from doing what they do because of the pain that they cause to people? Um, I, can't speak, I, I can't speak for all hackers, but 
but personally and the people that I talk to, there is things that are off, off, off limits and it's usually things to do with like charities and aid organisations like the Red Cross. I mean, there's not many people that actually hack the Red Cross, but pretty much everything else just, just, it, it just seems fair game to some people. I mean, there's so many different like types of hackers. There's, there's people that are in it for financial gain where they're going to go for your banking, your credit cards, and they're just coming for your money. There's people, that, there's activists that are basically, they do their hacking with a political message. They're going to deface your website and, and post, it, post their message on your website, which is usually, it usually happens to like government websites and things like that. And then there's, there's people that do it just because they can and just, just because they, um, they, they find it a challenge, like, like, like me. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Ryan and Mustafa, thank you so much for that. Um, that. Those are the questions I was going to ask you. Um, can I now please um, turn to John Boucher and um, invite you to give us your presentation? Thank you. Right. Excuse me, I'm pretty late, so we're hoping this works. If it doesn't, we'll be fine. Oh. There's going to be some irony about cyber and technology now. I'm expecting some comments. Right. Um, firstly, John Boucher, Jonathan did the introduction. Um, my sort of main job from a national perspective is looking at undercover policing at the moment as national lead. There are huge links with regards to crime and what's going on the internet to undercover policing, which hopefully won't be lost on many of you and will come out during this presentation. My journey into cybercrime and trying to find out about it as a very traditional orthodox detective who's been on the flying squad and the regional crime squad and involved in covert policing, I was asking a lot of people, what is cybercrime? Who's committing it? What should we be doing about it? And I didn't really get any answers. And I think policing are still trying to find the answers, uh, if I'm quite frank. And that led to me uh, a couple of years ago working with Cambridge and doing a thesis on cybercrime and the cybercriminal and some of the work and interviewing uh, people uh, like Mustafa and Ryan um, that I've done I think has helped us understand uh, some of the uh, activity that's happening online but um, there's a huge amount going on that we really don't know about. So uh, the first slide just represents the fact that we are very technical in the police. That speed trap there was sort of state of the art uh, and hopefully a bit of irony for you there. And where we are now in policing, um, this is from a CT investigation, it's not just the orthodox crimes that um, attract an element of the internet or cyber. People will research now where to commit crime because we actually map crime patterns. You know, the Met, you can map what areas have got the most crime. You can get so much information and data on the internet. You could almost go on the internet and learn how to be a burglar. You can do anything on the internet. So it's not just about committing an offence, it's about all the uh, contributory factors that you can go now on the internet to learn anything. Somebody said to me the other day, why would I ever want to go to university? Because I just Google anything I want to know. If I want to plan, I want a new strategy about something, I'll Google the best strategies and the best plans in a given area. And it is hard for people like me to understand that concept, but that's the world we currently live in. Um, Right, the Internet of Things is policing ready. Um, there's a couple of video clips that hopefully will run. Maybe not, no volume. 
That's not very exciting. If that doesn't come with a volume, I will just skip it. And it's not going to. Right. In effect, that sort of builds on, I think it was what Ryan was saying, that everything is now online. Um, the chap who was talking to that video is really animated and excited that everything we now do is connected to um, online actions, whether you're booking holidays, whether you're shopping, whether you're dating, whether you're banking, um, everything, whether you're buying a car, anything and everything that we do, and certainly our communications are all online, so they're accessible to everybody. Even your fridge will tell you when food's going down. There is everything. You know, some of the premises now that some people have got houses are literally built in the technological age. My concern and challenge to policing is that we're still sitting somewhat in the analog age. But we'll, we'll talk about some of the things we're now doing. You can read some of these, although this is talk to and there's music to this. Ten facts about the dark web. And I'll talk about the dark web in a moment. The deep web is online context for not indexed or catalogued, and I'll come to some of what that means. 7,500 terabytes of information compared to 19 on the surface web. And these, these figures change all the time, I have to say. Ninety-six percent of the internet beyond search engines such as Google and Bing. So what we have found in the States, interestingly enough, some criminals have been sending drugs to law enforcement officers and then reporting the offending to law enforcement. So officers that get particularly good at tackling them, they're actually setting them up as criminals. And law enforcement agencies in America have fallen for this. This is what's happening now. This is the new reality. Um, there's a link there to the government in the US sort of funding some of the platforms that originally started uh, the deep and the dark web. Silk Road, buying drugs and other goods. I'll talk about some of that with some facts I've got in a moment. Um, some of the estimates around transactions. This is about four months old and the reliability is questionable, but it gives you a sense of the level of criminality that's occurring there. We know about bitcoins. Again, we'll talk a little bit about bitcoins. So one of the things about the deep web as well, it can be used for good. So where there is an oppressive regime, it does allow people to get access to um, information uh, that they wouldn't ordinarily be allowed to do. So it's not all bad news what happens on the deep web. All sorts of suggestions to security using the deep web to try and recruit, recruit now. Um, people like Ryan and Mustafa, basically. And we need to do that. Um, and yeah, the US intercepted Al-Qaeda message on the deep web has led to many, many, many uh, security uh, uh, actions around the globe that have saved many, many, many lives.
and some of the services that you can get on the deep web, where you can literally get anything that you desire. Has anybody been on the deep web? <laughs> Besides anybody on the stage. So, some of the stuff then, um, the legitimate purpose, I think it is worth talking about, do use the tools there, political activists, whistleblowers, journalists, people living under oppressive regimes. And there is always a question about the freedom of the internet and the freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And I support and agree with all that. The difficulty comes is that there are those that use then that platform for um, controlled drug substance marketplaces, credit card and identity fraud, leaks uh, of stolen and sensitive information, stolen goods, stolen to order, assassination, terrorism, hacktivism, software exploiting markets as well and trading, uh, all illegal financial transactions, weapon sales and arms trafficking, gambling, and a really significant area for us is child sexual exploitation. Uh, and the abuse of children that's occurring on the web. Um, so, just to give you some sense of, you know, I use Google, you see that sort of, um, that image is trying to give you a sense of the amount of activity that's occurring uh, in the deep web compared with what you would see mainstream-wise when you do your Google, Google researches. The difficulty we've got is policing isn't in the deep web sufficiently. It really isn't. Um, we're moving there, but we're still very much traditional in our approach to things. What I would say is through the creation of the National Crime Agency uh, in October 2013, um, there has been the, uh, the uh, creation of the National Cybercrime Unit. They are doing an amount of work, proactivity, on the internet and on the deep web. But when you look at the numbers and the resources, we do need to put more into that. And a lot of the resources in the National Cybercrime Unit do a lot of prevention and protection activity. And some of you will have heard of CISP and CERT, which is the Emergency Response Team and Information Sharing Partnerships. Building a little bit, actually, on what the two guys said, lots of investment in this country since 2010 when we had the National Security Strategy and the government said, you've got to think in a new way about cybercrime. The focus has been on protection awareness. We'll all have seen cyber streetwise, all of those sort of marketing uh, tools that have been out there recently, just to remind you to uh, protect yourself in a better way and that you won't walk around with your credit card numbers sort of labelled on your back or anything like that. But that's what you do effectively when you don't protect yourself on the internet. Um, I'm not going to dwell on this. Under the new Serious Crime Act, we went to government and this links to some of the challenges in my thesis when I tried to find out some information. Put simply, I thought I would go and interview people like the guys and say, why did you do it? What was your journey to it? How easy is it to find out about cybercrime? And that's where the challenge began. Because I thought it would be quite easy to go to the Home Office to get the data around where all the cybercriminals were, what, who's been charged with what. Action fraud in the city as of the 1st of April 2013, was the single repository for cybercrime. Cyber-dependent and cyber-enabled. Cyber-dependent, your attacks on your systems, cyber-enabled, online shopping, offences like that. Forces aren't using that system properly. 
So the data in action fraud, not the fault of the City of London Police, it's the, it's the support that the City have got from forces hasn't been right. I looked at the number of offences from the 1st of April 2013, 12 months of cyber-dependent offences where we'd convicted people across England and Wales. So for 12 months from the 1st of April 2013, cyber-dependent offences, any guess how many successful prosecutions according to our single repository we had in the UK? Any numbers? Two. Well, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> it was 48. 48. Of those 48, they came from 19 of the 43 forces, though. So that means those other forces that didn't contribute to that, did they have no cyber-dependent prosecutions? Of course they did, but our data collection wasn't right. And the reason I mention this, this is one of the challenges in demonstrating the problem profile of cybercrime. We haven't got the data, we haven't got the evidence that demonstrates the level of activity that's happening. When I looked at the online offences, and by the way, we, we, at those 48 cyber-dependent offences, we went and spoke to a number of those offenders, looked at their crimes, and we, we expected to find criminals at the high-end, sophisticated end of the market. And we did find some in that 48, but very few. And there's been a couple of questions about uh, one individual who had uh, provided botnets for an organisation and he was asked about his motivation and what he thought about victims to all this. Well, what victims? I'm, I don't know the victims. There's no connection. There's no concern about the victims. There's a distancing from that. What was most interesting, that most of those 48 offences were what I would call very run-of-the-mill traditional crimes. Because so much crime is now, as I mentioned at the beginning, linked to the internet. So domestic abuse, um, uh, all sorts of stalking offences... Uh, harassment offences, obviously straightforward theft, but low-level stuff, low-level stuff. Um, and all of it, again, building on what the guys said, most of it, and I remember Ian Loban said at a select committee a while ago, I think in 2012, 80% of cybercrime is preventable. 80% of those offences were simply people who knew passwords, had left a company or split up in a relationship when using those passwords. So all very preventable. What information is there on cybercrime when you look at it? I went to the library, library, library at Cambridge, the criminology library. Cyber isn't even indexed there. You've got internet crime, computer crime, cybercrime isn't indexed. It, and that, for me, told a story. Uh, we're on a journey, and it really is uncharted territory. And what work that has been done um, is very superficial on the journey. So, I started off wanting to interview cyber criminals. I ended up with these four questions. What are the strategic challenges for, police, for policing and tackling cybercrime? The police model, 43 forces. Money, this is a whole shift in how we need to operate. We are in a digital world and we've got very much an analogue model of policing. Big challenge. How widely is the internet being used by criminals? I can't think of any offences where it's not been impacted by the internet. And some people just think this is about fraud, City of London, uh, guys hacking into the FBI, all that very in impressive, sexy, top-level stuff. It's everywhere. Even researching uh, where to commit crime, what's the best place, where are police stations. The internet has an impact on every single offence that we came across. 
How effective are the recording and screening processes for capturing and investigating cybercrime? So the National Cybercrime Unit, who do some really good work, the Metropolitan Police Cybercrime Unit, you know, I mentioned that from the 1st of April 2013, all cyber offences had to be reported into action fraud. Do we presume that the National Cybercrime Unit were reporting their offences into action fraud? Do we presume it? I presumed it. But were they? No. Were the Metropolitan Cybercrime Unit? No. And when they charge people, they charge people with extortion or blackmail, not a computer misuse act offence. So the data, the Office of National Statistics, and when we hear that crime's not moving to the internet, we don't record the crime as it is occurring in a way that would demonstrate whether it is or not. But everything I've seen suggests that it is significantly. Um, and from examining the available data, what are the characteristics of the cyber criminal? Uh, and I'll deal with that very quickly uh, in a moment. I'm just conscious of time. Action fraud, big message for me about action fraud. They faced a lot of criticism in the, in the policing action fraud about how difficult it is to report cyber. This is a law enforcement issue to make sure that we make it easy to report offences and that we, we have recording process that enables us to, to understand the problem at all levels of crime. It is not simply an action fraud problem. And in fairness, the City of London Police, they're doing an enormous amount of work to um, provide a new reporting mechanism and reinvent themselves and produce a new um, collection process from September of this year. So they're doing a lot of good work. Right, the criminals we spoke to very quickly, so interested in these interviews. Most, not most, a lot don't understand that they're committing an offence. Some of them just think morally what they're doing is wrong, but don't think it's an offence to do it. So one of the guys I spoke to said that hacking into friends' Facebook's account to have a look at, and their computers to have a look at pictures they might have was just a test to see if they could do it, he could do it. His occupation, he was a police analyst. He went on holiday. Whilst he was on holiday, for, I say he went on holiday, he went on his honeymoon. While he was on his honeymoon, one of the officers, police officers, he sent some malware to, uh, took it to a computer uh, unit, asked them what they thought it was, and they had a look at it, and when he got back from his honeymoon, he was arrested. Okay? Interestingly, when we spoke to him, he was particularly perturbed that he bought some malware online, some you can get for free, some you can you buy. He bought some malware for about $30, and then he noticed his PayPal account started um, operating in a strange way, and he was losing some money. And he was particularly annoyed that whoever had obviously sold him the malware had actually corrupted his computer and were taking his money. And he didn't think that was very good, but he was going and looking at his friends or trying to look at his friends' computers, which was interesting. Um, a lot of people have also said, yeah, I'll finish, sorry, have also said, if only we as law enforcement were on these websites saying, look, this is illegal, we're tracking you, we're looking at you, they probably wouldn't have done some of the stuff they did. And the last point, which was really interesting, 88%, and that's only a small sample number, of the 48 had previous convictions. And those previous convictions weren't for fraud, they were for theft, for assault, for criminal damage. And of 333 online offenders, which is a good number, 64% had previous convictions. And of those 333, over 80 had markers for drugs, over 50 had markers for violence. The internet is being used by criminals and we need to adjust our systems to recognise that. Thank you very much indeed.
John, and I'm now going to invite Deputy Information Commissioner David Smith. Good evening. I suppose I, I should start by saying you know, what a pleasure it is to be here, but I have to say I feel a little uneasy stood here in these wonderful surroundings as though you know, they're not really designed to put speakers at ease. They're designed to make you think great words of wisdom are expected of you, and I'm not sure that I, I, I have those. And the subject is you know, cybersecurity, and I have to say I'm not a security or a technical expert. Uh, what I would like to think I am is something of a data protection expert. And... It's a very interesting time in the law so far as data protection is concerned at the moment. We've got a whole range of judgments coming out of the Court of Justice of the European Union uh, and now increasingly out of UK courts, which are quite privacy assertive. And for the first time, I think, you know, we really see the courts sort of have the wind behind their sails in asserting data protection and privacy rights. So very interesting for us. But that's not really what I'm here to, 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 to talk about. I'm here to talk about data breaches and particularly breach notification. Uh, so I'll say a little bit about our role at the Information Commissioner's Office uh, in breach notification, about some of the cases that we've received and dealt with and what they show, which chimes in very well, which I think what Ryan and Mustafa were saying, and then a little bit about how the legal framework is, is changing for the future. I mean, if you look at our role, you know, we're the regulator. Uh, our role is to do with personal data, you know, information that identifies you and I, all of us. So it's not uh, generally any type of, uh, 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 of breach. It's specifically about personal information. But that's what many of us have, of course, a direct concern in. The system that we operate, uh, where breaches can be, be notified and are notified to our office, is by and large a voluntary system. There is, for the most part, no legal requirement to, 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 to notify uh, our breaches. We set up the system uh, largely after big government data breaches some years ago. You may remember the child benefit disks which went, went missing. When there was a lot of attention on security and we started getting organizations, if you like, wanting to confess to us their, their breaches and wanting to tell us about them, and we set up a system to, 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 to cope with that. Since then, within large parts of the public sector, the government and the National Health Service, there's, if you like, management instruction political drivers to notify us. And we get, I'm sure, a higher proportion of notifications from the, the public sector than we do from the private sector. Uh, and just recently, uh, there is a legal requirement under the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations for communication service providers to notify us of breaches. So that's just the, the small sector communication service providers who are under legal obligation uh, uh, to notify. And we get round about 150 notifications a month. 
I have to say, as I say, you know, most or large numbers are from the NHS, they're from local government. I'm not sure I should say this in the present surroundings, but solicitors and barristers feature quite highly on the list of notifications as well. And I think you know, there's, there's a message, it's not perhaps cybersecurity, but there is, it goes to the NHS as well, about people who are sort of professionals, uh, NHS consultants and the like, do have a little bit of a tendency to either think, well, this doesn't really apply to me, I'm in a different world, I'm not dealing with masses of data in huge databases, which is absolutely true. Uh, but you are dealing with often very, very sensitive information about people's legal cases or about people's uh, your medical conditions and, and so on. And it, they're just as important to, uh, 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 as large databases. When we get notified uh, uh, of breaches, you, you might ask, what do we do? Uh, I hesitate to say in most cases nothing, because that's not quite true. I mean, every notification we get, uh, we do a risk assessment, we look at it, and we, we, we check. And when people notify us of breaches, they, they tell us what the circumstances were, how the breach arose, how many people were affected, but also what steps they've taken to make sure that it doesn't happen again, which is absolutely you know, crucial in this area. And once we've done that risk assessment, in many of the cases, we simply record them as no further action required. We store that away in our intelligence database for the, the, the future. Uh, in a small proportion, we decide an investigation is needed, and we do investigate it in depth. Very often in those, we agree a course of action with the organization, the data controller, the business that's been responsible for the breach. Uh, you know, their, their measures they proposed weren't good enough, but after discussion with us, they come up with something better, and often that's underlined in a formal undertaking, which is signed by chief executive, uh, chairman, uh, and published on our website. And in a smaller number of cases where there really are serious breaches uh, and ongoing problems, we can either uh, impose enforcement notice and order to require businesses to change a practice, you know, simply, very simply, to stop sharing passwords in the future, or we can impose monetary penalties, administrative fines of up to half a million pounds. Uh, and in fact, I say either. We can actually do both, because the fines are about punishing for past failure, and the uh, enforcement is about ensuring future co compliance. And the criteria for applying these monetary penalties, which are you know, fairly new, within the last four or five years that's come in, and again we're a response to, to big government data breaches. We have to show that the breach was serious, which isn't too, too difficult, that it was of a kind likely to cause substantial damage or substantial distress to individuals affected which is not always the case. But when you get things like credit card details being hacked, being lost, uh, and being used to commit fraud, then you have the potential for substantial damage and substantial distress to individuals. And they have to have occurred where the business knew or ought to have known of the risk and failed to take appropriate steps. And I think this comes to exactly what, what you were saying, you know, so many of these are avoidable if the right steps were, 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 were taken. The other question we get often asked is, you know, 
we're a, a, a public body, we're a regulator. Uh, do we publish all the information we receive about data breaches? If it comes to, if you report a breach to us, you know, is it going to get into the, the, the press that way? And the simple answer is no. It's not our job to publicize your data breaches. Uh, we, indeed, it would defeat in many ways the object because it will stop people uh, reporting to us, which is very much about you know, driving good practice and, uh, and improvement. It's the business's responsibility to notify affected individuals, uh, particularly when they can do something to protect their, their privacy and the use of their information. So if, if your credit card, you call to credit card information and that's been hacked, then you must tell the individuals who've been affected that that's the case uh, 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 and what steps they can take to protect themselves. But it's your job, it's the business's job, not, not, not our job to, to, to do that. Where we do publicise the breaches is where there's a need for public reassurance, where there are ones that have been in the, the headlines of the press or these days do on, 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 on the internet. There's a, a, a rumble of discontent and we need to show that action's been taken to... to um, uh, address that. And wherever we invoke our formal powers, where we enforce or where we uh, 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 take, impose monetary penalties. So just to, to, to say a word or two about some of the cases where we've imposed penalties. I mean, one of the most recent ones, it was a penalty of £175,000 against an online travel insurer called Stayshore. Uh, and when I try and describe to you, you know, the detail of the attack and what happened, I'll get out of my, my, my depth. It's all, all these notices are published on our website. You can read them. But basically, the website was attacked. It wasn't sufficiently secure. Uh, the hacker got into there, modified the code, was able to execute commands on the, 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 the website, could gain access to the encryption keys. So although the data was encrypted, was able to, to, to decrypt payment card data, and um, for those of you who are familiar with, with payment card data, it's not just the credit card number. You know the little security number, the CCV number on the back of your card? That was stored in many cases, which is contrary to the payment industry uh, 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 rules, and that was accessed, which makes the information uh, uh, much more vulnerable. And around about 5,000 card details were used fraudulently. And the vulnerability on the website was known, it had been published, and there were patches, fixes available to, 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 to address that. But they, the organization had no formal process for reviewing its security, for applying patches, uh, and as I say, it was keeping these CVV numbers uh, quite unnecessarily and in breach of another requirement of the Data Protection Act, not to store excessive data. And there's something here, you know, if you don't hold the data, it can't be attacked and it's not vulnerable. So it's about data minimization as well as about, about security. I mean, I won't take you, you through the others. You mentioned Sony, I think, earlier on. Sony was one of our first uh, in this area, which was the same. It was a Sony PlayStation network. And it was a failure to keep the security up to date. Uh, Charities are an aid organisation. You said you don't go for charities and aid organisations, but one of our penalties was the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, which is a charity, and you may say is an aid organisation, 
but came under attack from an anti-abortionist. Uh, perhaps understandably, and a risk that they, that, that, that they should have looked at. And the problem there uh, was that they had a callback system. You register your details on BPAS's website, your name, address, date of birth, uh, an email address, and then they, they get back to you. Uh, and their website had been designed by someone else on their behalf, and all this was insecure. They hadn't done proper checks. So there is very often here as well, you, know, uh, you rely on other people to provide these services for you, and they don't do it properly, but it's your responsibility. It's here it was the British Pregnancy a a a Advisory Service. So there are a load of lessons here, uh, but the main ones are about you know, a failure to update, a failure to keep on, on top of security, a lack of proper testing. I think you hinted at this, the commercial rush to market. The marketers say, you know, we've got to get our website launched. Come on, you security people, hurry up. Uh, uh, and that is when the vulnerabilities occur. And a lack of training and expertise amongst those developing and apl applying websites, excessive data, uh, charities and third sector, and I mentioned professionals, sort of think, well, this is sort of beyond us. It's not going to happen to us. <laughs> there is a tendency for people to think there's a good causes exemption in the Data Protection Act. And if we're doing all this in a good cause, we don't really have to take the, the measures. And it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't quite work like that. A lot of it is about human failures. But the problem is there should always be safeguards so that if the humans fail, which humans always will fail, there are safeguards which don't lead to, 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 to disaster and often they're not in place. And lastly, it's about a failure to learn. Uh, the breach which happened and then the same breach happens again three or four weeks later because no, 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 nobody's learned. So if I may, just a word or two about the, the, the future. Because I've said there's no compulsion or very little compulsion about breach reporting. But as you may know, uh, within Europe, a new data protection legal framework is under development a regulation to replace the directive which our current Data Protection Act is based on, a regulation which will have direct effect uh, on all the EU member states. And there's a proposal within that, which I am sure will go through, uh, that breach notification in general becomes compulsory. And that's breach notification both to the regulator, the Data Protection Authority, and to affected individuals, at least to affected individuals where you know, it's a significant breach and it's likely to have a detrimental effect or, 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 on their privacy. Uh, and it's, you know, it's open to speculation when we'll get this regulation. I would say round about a year's time is probably the, the, the earliest. And then two years to come into force. But the whole direction of travel is towards compulsory breach notification. It's commonplace in the States. It's increasingly being adopted in other European countries in advance of, uh, 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 of the new regulation. Um, and as we say, with all the... the, 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 you know, the uh, uh, preparing for the new data protection regime when it comes about. The best preparation of all is to be up to date with the legal requirements and your duties at the moment. And the same is true here. You know, the best preparation is to have in place a breach management process already. Every decent organization should have this because everybody is at risk. So you need to thought through exactly what you're going to do when you come under attack. And if I may, just the, you know, the very final word... Uh, I've talked about the penalties we impose. They're not 
penalties for having your website hacked. There are penalties for having your website hacked and failing to have had proper up-to-date security measures in place to, to, to protect against that. Everybody is liable to attack. Uh, that's not the punishment. It's for failing to protect. And I think, you know, uh, 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 Ryan and Mustafa, you said it yourselves. Maybe any organization is vulnerable to attack, but you go for the easy targets. Uh, and don't make yourself an easy target. And if you are an easy target, you'll incur the wrath of the information commissioner. But you'll also, you know, if you're in commercial business, you'll destroy the trust and confidence of your customers. So take it seriously. And I'll, I'll leave it there. I'm sorry if I've taken a, you know, a minute or two more than I should have done. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Michal O'Floyne. Great. Um, so thank you very much, Jonathan, for the invitation. Uh, it certainly is a, a, a real honor to be here. So what I want to talk um, today about is, I think, one of the most important things in cybercrime investigations, and that is how you get data from transnationally operating um, global service providers. And I'm just going to focus on two legal developments that apply to even routine um, police officers, not the kind of spook stuff that we know about from Tempura and Prism and so on. Um, and so I'm going to focus on one uh, legal development from the U.S. and one from the U.K. In the U.S., I'm going to uh, just consider this Microsoft warrant case, a case that's ongoing uh, in, the, uh, in a court of appeal in the United States at the moment, and also just touch on some of the uh, extraterritorial provisions um, to RIPA that were introduced last year through the Data Retention and Investigatory Powers Act. And basically, what I want to um, focus on is how through these developments, concepts of territoriality are being transformed uh, in, in order to meet law enforcement's needs and to think about some of the, the implications of that. And so I'll touch on that at the end. Um, a couple of words are needed just to introduce uh, the concept of jurisdiction in, in international law in order to understand some of these developments. Um, there's, there's gen it's generally accepted that there's a tripartite division between uh, prescriptive jurisdiction, adjudicative jurisdiction, and enforcement jurisdiction in international law. Um, so, for example, a state can, within the limits of international law, prescribe laws, legislate, so as to deal with um, foreign activities. Um, an example might be the nationality jurisdiction now that applies over uh, cybercrime offences in the Computer Misuse Act. But there's no question that a state like the UK could go into, send a law enforcement agent to another country, go in, get the perpetrator there, and bring him back. So while criminal substantive jurisdiction can apply, there's no way that it could enforce those laws by sending agents to a foreign, um, a foreign country and seizing individuals and data. And that's because of enforcement jurisdiction and the, the strict territorial nature of enforcement jurisdiction. So in the Lotus case, the International Court of Justice said that it is the first and foremost restriction imposed in international law, and a state may not exercise its power in any form in the territory of another state. I think this um, understanding of these three divisions of jurisdiction was well explained by a French academic in 1979. Lombard said, the law may very well decide to cast its shadow beyond its borders. The judge may well have a voice so loud that speaking in his house, his condemnations are heard outside, but the reach of the police officer is only as long as his arm. He is constable only at home. 
So what I want to think about is whether or not that's still true today, given the developments that I'm going to be talking about. So the Microsoft Warrant case basically concerned um, uh, criminal investigation in relation to uh, drug trafficking. Um, the suspect, we think, was in Ireland, definitely within the EU. It's not clear from the papers, um, from the court papers. But the law, the law enforcement served a warrant on Microsoft in the United States for information in relation to this um, perpetrator. So they were looking for customer information about him. They were looking for the entire contents of his email account. Now, Microsoft complied with the former, but refused to comply with the latter. So it refused to hand over the contents of his email account. It did so because the email account was stored on a server in Ireland, in Dublin, um, run by a subsidiary of uh, Microsoft, Microsoft Ireland. Now, to understand this case and um, what's going on there, uh, I need to say a couple of words briefly about the different powers that are available under the Stored Communications Act in the US. And basically, it's useful to think about the three different orders um, with this inverted triangle. At the very bottom, you've got a subpoena. You can get certain basic information, subscriber information, and so on through a subpoena. You don't need uh, a judge to sign off on it. You don't need judicial authorization. Uh, and you don't need to hit a very high evidential threshold to get a subpoena. At the top end, you can get a lot more information. Unopened emails, opened emails, um, everything else that you can get with the other orders. You do need to get uh, judicial authorization. You do need to show probable cause that the, um, that the information you're seeking is relevant to your criminal investigation. So higher threshold, but more information obviously available. Now, there are a number of points of contention ongoing, uh, and this case is still before the, the Court of Appeal there, and there, there's oral hearings due in, uh, in the summer, I believe. Um, but there are a number of points of contention about, uh, about this case, and the first is in relation to the nature of the order that was served. Microsoft said that because they served a warrant, that couldn't apply extraterritorially, that a search warrant in the United States, for example, can only be executed in the United States, it can't be executed abroad. Um, that wasn't accepted at first instance. Judge Francis said that this is a hybrid warrant, it's a part warrant, because it, you do need to go to a judge, you do need to show probable cause, but that it's also part subpoena, and that there's no question of law enforcement going into Microsoft's servers, whether in the US or in the UK, in order to secure this data. All they're being asked to do is to produce the data, to disclose it. And that's important because of the application of subpoena principles in the US. Um, and basically, for quite a number of years now, even before the Stored Communications Act, US authorities have been able to compel banks and other entities in the US to produce um, data that's stored abroad by subsidiaries abroad, um, so notably in Switzerland and places that uh, thought that they had secrecy laws that applied but didn't. Um, so the, the operation of this has been going on prior to the Stored Communications Act. And with this doctrine, the principles, um, the subpoena principles, they focus on who has control of the documents, not the location, not where they're from. So through the operation of, um, of subpoenas, they have been able to compel US-based entities to get access to, to documents, data abroad previously. Microsoft challenged the application of this principle to the Warren case. Um, they do so because they said the operation of subpoenas have only ever been used to compel business records. So for example, you could, pre, you, you could compel um, business records of a bank in the United States in relation to 
customer information uh, around safety deposit boxes held abroad or held in the United States. But if the safety deposit box is in, the, is in Switzerland, there's no question that you would be able to get the contents of that um, through a subpoena. You would need to go through mutual legal assistance with the Swiss authorities and so on. And Microsoft are saying that the same principle ought to apply, um, or this, the same principle ought to apply in the online world. That basically to gain access to the contents of an email account, that you would also need to go through mutual legal assistance. Otherwise, it says that there will be a disjunction between the online and the offline worlds. Um, another major point of contention is whether or not um, the execution of the warrant would involve the extraterritorial enforcement of US law. So looking at the operation of, um, of the warrant, there's three stages to it. There is service on Microsoft, then there's the execution in, in getting access to the data, and then there's the disclosure of it to the law enforcement authority that requested it. And basically, the, the US government are focusing on either end of that, but not on the execution. So Judge Francis, on, uh, on, on at first instance, he said that the obligation on Microsoft was only to act in the United States. This is despite the fact they have to pull the information from servers in Ireland. Um, Microsoft are obviously arguing that they're not paying due, due heed to the execution of the warrant being in Ireland. Um, there are questions about whether or not there will be a breach of Irish data protection law. Um, Jan Albrecht, famous MEP on data protection law, European Commission, uh, Michael McDool, a former Attorney General, all of the view that it would involve a breach of Irish data protection law and therefore would involve a conflict of laws between the United States and uh, and Ireland, and that Microsoft would be um, compelled to produce in, uh, in the United States, but yet would breach Irish law if they did so. I'm fairly familiar with Irish data protection law, and it's not actually clear that it would um, be a breach of, of Irish data protection law, and that's why Microsoft haven't actually claimed that. But it's another major point of contention. And then finally, there are practical and policy considerations. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the things that might turn these arguments in favor of the government in the end. So the government is saying, if you take Microsoft's interpretation of the Stored Communications Act here, it's going to completely hamper all of our criminal investigations. And um, there will be circumstances where the evidence is stored in locations where um, you know, we just don't even have a mutual legal assistance agreement. There will be circumstances where the evidence is, is scattered across various territories. So you would need to send you know, 10 different mutual legal assistance requests to different countries. Um, and you know, mutual legal assistance is well known even in itself to be incredibly slow, taking months, sometimes even years. So, U.S. government saying, if you accept Microsoft's view here, it's going to completely um, hamper all of our investigations. And that, I think, might be um, probably where this, this case turns. But unclear yet where it's going to, where it's going to go. I think there are arguments. Um, some of Microsoft's arguments on extraterritoriality in particular are quite strong. Okay, certain um, developments in the U.K. then, uh, in DRIPA. And some of the background here, and this is something that not a lot of people actually know, um, but for a number of years now, many of the major US service providers have been cooperating with UK law enforcement and other law enforcement directly. Um, so without any kind of formal interstate um, procedures in place, they have been providing data 
mostly non-content data, so communications data. They've been providing them directly to law enforcement. Um, Facebook, eBay, and the likes, they have online portals even to facilitate this. Now, they've always said, these service providers have always said that this interaction um, is voluntary, that it involves voluntary compliance with RIPA, the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act. Um, how did that practice emerge? Well, I think it emerged due to certain provisions of the Stored Communications Act. Um, these are, as I said, mostly US-established, US-based service providers, um, and their counsel, their general counsels, are well-versed in US law, maybe not always EU or UK law. Uh, and under US law, under the Stored Communications Act, there are provisions which allow, for example, the disclosure of customer records um, where you have the lawful consent of the customer or subscriber. So that's generally, I think, interpreted where you have terms and conditions of Microsoft or the like saying we are able to, to give your information to law enforcement upon request. Um, that's lawful consent, I think, under the Stored Communications Act. Likewise, if there is a risk of death or serious physical injury, service providers can also provide um, that information. So I think that's where it started, and that's where I think these direct um, voluntary relationships between uh, UK and other law enforcement and these foreign intermediaries, um, that's where it began. But there are a number of other legal considerations um, here, not just US law, but obviously UK law, EU law. There are considerations as to whether or not these service providers are even subject to RIPA because they don't meet the definition of telecommunications services. There are questions about you know, the, um, the legality under EU data protection law, uh, whether or not their, their establishments in Ireland, a lot of them are, are actually established in Ireland, would be breaching EU law by, um, by providing that information. And looking at some of the grounds for processing, and David can, can comment on, on this as well, I think, um, it's very questionable. You know, it's usually, they usually point to consent as a ground for processing, but agreement to, general agreement to terms and conditions like this um, is accepted by, I've seen representatives from um, the European Commission even saying that that wouldn't, that wouldn't be sufficient, um, that, that wouldn't be unambiguous consent for the purposes of the data, data protection directive. Likewise, they can't say that they were complying with a legal obligation because they said themselves that these, um, these requests were being complied with voluntarily. And there are questions under international law as well, of course, to whether or not there is an extraterritorial enforcement of UK powers when they're sending these requests to foreign intermediaries. Um, at the time, you could say, well, they were responding voluntarily, so there's no extraterritorial enforcement. But then this guy, he had to get in at some stage, Edward Snowden. So then I think he threw the spanner in the works. Okay? So these, this voluntary, these voluntary relationships were working quite happily for UK law enforcement at least. Um, but then after the Snowden revelations, um, service providers' disclosure practices, there was a spotlight shone on them, basically, and they started getting nervous about these sorts of interactions. So they were said, according to Malcolm Rifkind, during parliamentary debates um, with the passing of DRIPA, uh, and in the explanatory notes even of DRIPA, service providers were said to be looking for uh, a more formal arrangement and a clear obligation in law, no doubt partly so that they could meet the data protection concerns with the processing. 
and ask and you shall receive, and that's what, you got, what, that's what they got in DRIPA. So in DRIPA, we see an expanded definition of telecommunications service. I won't get into the ins and outs with now and bore you, um, but we can see from the code of practice, the draft code of practice, that it is now meant to cover web-based email, messaging applications, cloud-based services, and so on. But very importantly as well, there have been um, uh, huge changes to Part 1, Chapter 1 and 2 of, uh, of RIPA. So now that there have been the clear amendments um, that, that now suggest that interception warrants and notices for communications data can be served on entities even if they're in another country. Um, these entities, these service providers, telecommunication services, are now under a duty to comply even if they're in another country. And if they don't comply, they can be subject to criminal penalties. Um, how, can they, you know, how can they claim to enforce UK law on completely foreign intermediaries like this? Well, according to the draft interception of communications code of practice, it's because these companies are offering services to customers in the UK. How times have changed from what Lombos said, the reach of the police officer is only as long as his arm. The result, I think, is quite a myopic um, uh, law enforcement-led um, attempt to secure data at all costs. So the US case uh, I mentioned, and that is just one case that I've taken as illustrative of some of these um, developments. US case now says that data can be secured regardless of where it is once there is personal jurisdiction over the service provider. Um, in the UK, with DRIPA, we can see that data can be secured regardless even of where the service provider is located once it's offering its services in the UK. Now, as I said, I think a lot of this is law enforcement-led, it's quite myopic, and it's not thinking about all of the potential ramifications. Um, it is undoubtedly transforming the concept of territoriality in the realm of enforcement jurisdiction, and that's mostly clear, I think, with, with DRIPA um, and with the changes to, um, uh, to uh, the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act. There's no question that this is an extraterritorial enforcement of UK law. These um, notices for communications data are being electronically served on foreign intermediaries. They're told, if you don't comply, um, we're going to prosecute you. Um, it's also undoubtedly uh, going to lead, I think, to an acceleration in the movement towards data sovereignty. Uh, EU countries, you all know, are quite worried now about the, the powers that um, the US government have and are, are claiming. Uh, and that's why we're seeing discussions in many quarters of requiring intermediaries to store data locally and to seal it up, to sever their, uh, their legal entities so that they can't actually be compelled by foreign law enforcement then to um, provide it. And these developments have also set precedents for converse scenarios. Foreign governments compelling a local provider to disclose information in relation to a New York Times reporter, member of Congress, federal judge. That's an example um, that Microsoft gave. UK service providers being approached directly by foreign LEAs for data um, held about UK citizens. This, I think, is quite a real concern now post-Tripper. If the UK can do it, why can't others? David Davis, during the, the passing of DRIPA, that's one of the things he said. He said, what happens when um, Russia and China start claiming the same powers? What are we going to do then? And I think the answer isn't quite clear yet. So undoubtedly, um, 
there is a necessity for improving access. I mean, cybercrime investigations, even normal criminal investigations, will turn, will succeed or not on the basis of whether or not you can get information from um, these intermediaries. But there are a number of problems with the current paradigm, and these are just a couple. Um, there is a complete lack of agreement, a lack of international harmonization around the procedural conditions for access, whether, uh, you know, when law enforcement can approach intermediaries abroad, um, in what circumstances, when you can secure data that's stored abroad from local intermediaries. These are issues that just haven't been debated properly at the international level. Um, uh, one worrying development is the way that service providers are now determining with whom they will cooperate. So they have, as I said, a good working relationship with many UK law enforcement agencies. They just point blank refuse to, to comply with um, requests from other countries like Turkey. Um, and that is worrying. You know, why, why should service providers basically be determining um, which laws it can comply with? And that raises profound questions for the rule of law. Um, uh, there are not, uh, you know, a practical issue is the insecurity of methods of transfer in many cases. Um, some intermediaries interact with law enforcement in foreign, foreign countries without, you know, without even encrypting information, without um, using secure services and so on. So undoubtedly we're at a, a crossroads. Um, there's no question that states can't do anything, something needs to be done. Um, I don't, you can read it. Um, either states are going to drastically overhaul mutual legal assistance, make it effective, make it fast, um, not take six months or a year to move a bit of data you know, uh, to another country, which is just crazy in the 21st century. It's either going to be that, or they need to uh, completely formalize um, the interactions, the direct interactions that are occurring between law enforcement and intermediaries in other countries, whether to secure data stored abroad or, um, uh, or intermediaries in other countries. And basically, you know, existing agreements are completely inappropriate for dealing with this, the Cybercrime Convention, etc. So these are the choices, I think, that need to be made. And a lot of the future of cybercrime pol policing will be dependent on how these issues are actually resolved. Sorry. Thank you very much, Michal. I'm now going to ask um, Professor Ormerod to moderate questions. I should add that we have a, at least one roving microphone, and also this event is being recorded for podcast later on, audio only, so please be aware of that. David. Well, I wonder if I could just start, actually. I'm sure there are lots of questions from the audience, given the high calibre of the presentations we've just heard. It strikes me that there are... It, the problem is here. We may have been slow to recognize the problem and the scale of the problem of, of cybercrime, although I note that the Criminal Law Review was running special issues on cybercrime as long ago as 1998. But we've now recognized the, the problem. Where do we focus our legal response? Where should we be focusing the response? Should it be in the creation of new, broader, graver crimes? Although I think, Ryan, you said that actually that didn't deter you. The fact that you knew that there was a criminal offence involved. We now have the Serious Crime Act 2015 offences, which John mentioned, which increase in some cases the maximum sentence to life. We have the opportunity to regulate the web owner. Do we place the burden on the potential victim? 
which may actually be counterintuitive because that may make it a greater challenge. You think, here is somebody who's got a more secure system, so I will demonstrate my ability by cracking that. And then there's the option of in investing more of our legal brain power in investigations. Do we say, we know that these crimes are going to occur, it's about having the best possible investigative powers, which may actually be a deterrent. And I think one of you mentioned the idea that you, you were conscious throughout of the risk of detection. Um, I don't know if people, panelists, would like to say, what, if, we, if we could do one thing to enhance the legal response, where should we be? No, I think the Computer Misuse Act is a very well-worded act. I don't think there's any need for further legislation because it, it, it strikes a very good balance, in my opinion, the Computer Misuse Act. So I think the response shouldn't be further legislation. It should probably be in law, enforce, law enforcement response. I mean, I, 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 I can only agree. I mean, you're more expert in this than I am, but I don't think there's any suggestion that if you make your, your, your services, your websites, whatever, more and more secure, that's a more and more tempting target because it's a challenge. I mean, maybe that's true if you're the FBI or the, the NSA in the, the US. The, 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 the targets are those that aren't secure. Uh, so... I'm not sure, or there's, before the answer is changes in the law, there's a lot, long way to go in just businesses taking this more seriously uh, uh, and applying it. And, you know, I could say, we've got penalties up to half a million pounds, oh, let's make it one million, five million, uh, maybe. And the European proposals, the regulation will have higher penalties, I, th I think. But I'm not sure that's necessarily the answer, uh, because a lot of, you know, we talk, mentioned Sony, one million, five million, it's, it's, it's sort of water off a duck's back. Uh, and it's more about sort of trust and reputation and so on that, are the, that, that drive us here. Um, thank you. Um, I suppose I'll default to the obvious answer. I think uh, for me, we've got to do more in the pursue space. There's got to be a, um, a risk. At the moment, I think cyber criminals see the internet as high yield, low risk. Uh, from the ones I spoke to. They think that they can operate on there with impunity. So we need to do more of the pursue activity. But I think it's everything you said, David. It's the whole raft of... It's not one single thing that will solve this. Uh, one of the biggest challenges we've got, and lots of good stuff is being done, which, which I didn't manage to speak about in law enforcement and policing and through the National Cybercrime Unit. But I had a, an interesting debate the other evening where... There is still a reluctance to report cybercrime by industry because of uh, reputational issues, share price, all sorts of reasons, and they're understandable reasons. Intellectual property rights, um, and we have got to get the confidence of uh, those victims, they are victims, um, that we can deal with those crimes in a digital and modern way, which isn't going in the media and saying there's been this terrible offence. It's doing things discreetly, and it might not be arrest and prosecution, it might be a raft of other options to try and stop it and prevent people uh, doing the same offence to other companies as well. Um, 
Well, as a lawyer, I could pick out lots of little areas of the Computer Misuse Act I'd like to amend. Um, but I do think that uh, you know, where, where a difference will be made is both is basically a twofold strategy of investing massively in policing um, and in cap policing capabilities, both in the UK but elsewhere as well. And then also um, getting more countries to sign up to things like the Cybercrime Convention. So improving the procedural mechanisms for um, conducting these investigations. I think those are the two key um, issues that governments across the world should be focusing on. If I may, sorry, just to come back. Where I do think there is a, a real risk is in trying to provide you know, more easy access for law enforcement agencies and thereby undermining security. There's been a lot of focus on encryption, and encryption is making life difficult for law enforcement agencies because they can't decrypt the data. Therefore, you know, we have to provide ways for law enforcement to get access to encrypted data, backdoors into encryption. And I I fail to see how you can provide something which allows law enforcement legitimately to have those backdoors that can't also be exploited by yourselves and by you know, rogue states uh, uh, and so on. And I do think it's a real risk when we get into see you know, the communications data uh, uh, proposals probably returning in some, some form or other. Thank you very much. Well, perhaps we can throw it open to the floor. If you have a question, can I ask you to... Uh, state your name, and uh, if you're from an association other than 6KBW, perhaps you could make that known as well. Yes. Uh, Ashley Hurst from Allsguang. Um, a question mainly for David. You mentioned the British Pregnancy Advisory Service case. Um, that, that was a case concerning a not-for-profit organisation uh, who haven't got massive resources to pay an expensive IT director and employ all the very best technical advice. And when they had a breach, they reported it to the ICO, they got the police involved, they got an injunction, they took everything, oh, every step they could have done, and yet they still got fined £250,000, half the maximum. With compulsory notification on its way, would you not agree that levying massive fines like that would perhaps discourage companies from coming forward and sharing details of their breaches to help everybody else? Uh, I mean, it's, it's most definitely not true to say that BPAs did everything they should. They were completely lax in the checks that they made, or there were no checks, on the services, the website services that they, they were buying in. It was their fault that there was a, a, a breach, even though they were subject to a, 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 a criminal attack. They didn't take the, the, the measures to protect. Your point is a very good one. I think you slightly overstate the size of the fine. I can't remember just, just what it was. It was substantial, but I don't think it was quite as high as 250,000. There is a, 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 and they're not, they are a charity, but actually they get a lot of funding from the NHS and provide NHS services. And this was to do with a, a service that you were providing under, under funding. And there's a wider point there about sort of contracting out more and more sort of public services. Uh, that can't be a, a reason for, for lax security because you're, you're contracting out to someone who has sort of different culture uh, uh, and different tradition. But you make a valid point about, you know, do. Do the penalties uh, uh, put people off reporting? And I've no doubt that they do. Uh, 
And so sort of come on, you know, compulsory notification, because then you get a penalty also if you, you don't tell us. Uh, I just think the, the opposite uh, of saying if you tell us you get off sort of scot-free, you don't face a penalty, is more unacceptable. Uh, you know, you confess your sin and therefore you, 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 you're exempt from any penalty. And some of these breaches are so fundamental uh, that they need to, 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 to face sanction. All right, can we take a, a couple more questions? I'm conscious of the time, but if we have any more questions from the floor, yes. Um, I'm Duncan Penny from 6KBW. Um, my question is for, um, for both Michal and for John. It's about part one of REPA. And Michal, I was interested in your observations about um, the dangers in the extension of the assertion of, or the UK's attempt to assert um, jurisdiction so far as part one warrants are concerned um, given first of all that part one warrant, warrants don't result in admissible material in criminal courts they require the consent of the Home Secretary are reviewed by the Interception Commissioner both of whom at least should be taking into account questions of collateral intrusion and article 8 breaches um, What's the, what's the difficulty, uh, really, from, from an academic perspective with the UK attempting to do that, where if already, for example, a part one can, warrant can be granted because there's a telephone exchange one side of the Irish border or on the continent or whatever, what's the problem with the fact that the computer server just happens to be there as opposed to or the telephone exchange happens to be outside the, the, the domestic jurisdiction? Well, so from an academic point of view, um, there, there, there are concerns because you just mentioned the fact that you know, the Home Secretary does have to go through certain steps in order to, uh, b before signing off on uh, an interception warrant. There are checks and balances in place within the UK. Um, there may not be in other countries. And if your only territorial nexus is basically that these service providers are offering services in the UK, then that's setting a precedent for other countries to start um, adopting a similar jurisdictional um, ground, and they might not have the same checks and balances. And it just it completely transforms our previous understanding of enforcement jurisdiction. So again, from an academic point of view, it, it makes understanding the, the territorial territoriality of enforcement jurisdiction very difficult. I mean, from a, from a, from a law enforcement perspective, I, I, I love the term uh, of lawfully audacious. And, um, you know, I, I pick on your point there, Duncan, that I think there is legitimacy in that interpretation. That The fact is that we will never get all countries signed up internationally. And there was something I read at Card Market, which was, again, a criminal organization in the US in 2007. Card Market offered stolen credit cards, identities, various criminal services. They did a takeover of their four biggest rivals overnight, took all of their data. They effectively did a criminal takeover. The server that they used to uh, facilitate that was in Iran. Now, I know they didn't do that, you know, that wasn't uh, by accident. I, I do think that um, we have got to be quite forward-thinking in how we approach this because criminals are exploiting this in a way that is leaving uh, vulnerable people uh, exposed to losing life savings. We still, I think, provide a service if somebody gets their money stolen in the street from a, putting a 
cash machine in, the, in, 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 a, in a hole in the war machine and getting the cash out, we give them a great service in the police, they'll lose 20 pounds. They lose their life savings and there's international repercussions about where the attacks come from. Often we don't even know about it. it get, the, the, in fact, often the victims don't know about it for a considerable amount of time. And I think we've got to be more audacious in the application of things like part one. And I was the case officer actually, I will finish, for RV Piper and others, where we used international uh, uh, intercept uh, from the Dutch in a case which we would never have convicted those individuals. They had warranty in Holland. We had to get all of those uh, individuals and judges over here to show the justification for it. It was permitted in court and it's still good law. And I think that that's the example about how we can use intercept internationally. Um, I can see that the, the time has now got beyond 8 o'clock. That concludes the, the formal parts of this seminar. And would you please just join with me and thank our speakers for a fascinating evening. Thank you.